This morning, we're continuing our study of the books of First uh, and Second Timothy. Because it is a summer series, not tied to our small group study, we have flexibility to deal with some of the topics that arise, some of the questions that arise. And um, you see the title of today's sermon. I just want to give a little heads up to parents who may have young children with you today. As you see the title, we're going to be addressing what you see there. Um, and if you think, you know, that's, that's not a subject I'm ready to talk about with my uh, preschooler, elementary schooler who's with me in the service, and I think I might want to take him to Kids Rock today, just giving you that little uh, heads up as we'll move into that topic in just about 10 minutes. One thing uh, I'm certain of about this topic, there are many differences of opinions and lots of questions about how we interpret and we apply the Bible. So this is one of those days. I'd like for you to have the freedom, if you'd like to, to submit a question on the topic. And if you have your phone or, or some kind of a device with you whereby you can send an email, um, you can just send it to question at River Oaks, <clears throat> and later this morning they will put that up on the screen as time allows. But first, a little background. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> writes the words you'll see on the screen. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And I want to ask you to listen, especially to this next sentence written by the Apostle Paul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I want you to catch that. The Apostle Paul is referring to himself as the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst. He goes on to write, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Very briefly, we saw last week that the Apostle Paul's main concern is that truth be taught in the church. Let me emphasize that very, very strongly. This is his main concern. The Apostle Paul is not trying in these letters to set policy for the world. He's concerned that truth be taught in the church. And he writes to Timothy, I urged you as I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may not charge certain persons to teach any different doctrine. The Apostle Paul 
again, is not trying to set policy for the world. In fact, he elsewhere says, writing the Corinthians, what business do I have judging the world? God judges those outside. He's concerned with correct teaching of doctrine. And we see the word doctrine, it means biblical teaching in the church. As we saw last week, he's correcting error. Two primarily. One, we might call legalism. That is the idea that, yes, it's good to accept Jesus. He died for our sins, sure. But if you really want to be saved, you've got to do this. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey these dietary laws of the Old Testament. These were those who added requirements to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. On the other side, there is an error that he writes in 2 Timothy to correct, and that is what we might call lawlessness. The idea that, sure, Jesus is good, a little religion's good, but don't let it change your life. Go ahead and do whatever you feel like doing. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, these are those who, well, let me just read it to you in his words, because I can't quite quote it perfectly. 2 Timothy chapter 3, he writes, these are those who have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. A little religion is good. Yes, we can be religious, but don't let it keep you from doing what you feel like doing. And the Apostle Paul points out both as errors. So he's correcting uh, teaching in the church. Secondly, he's reinforcing the idea that the Old Testament law is good. Now, two weeks ago, we dealt with this I th what I think is a really important question. Why do we need the Old Testament? Why is it still valuable? Why, why is it still relevant to our lives? Why is it important for us to study it, to know it? The, the Old Testament law writes is good, but it, must, but it must be understood and applied in the light of the gospel of Jesus. We saw last week that it's scripture in the Old Testament like the Ten Commandments that shows us our need for the gospel. The Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. He said the law is like our, our guardian, our schoolmaster, our tutor to bring us to faith in Christ. A person can't really appreciate what Jesus did on the cross if they, if they don't think they have any sin and didn't need his forgiveness. So he's saying the law serves a very good purpose. And then thirdly, we see in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul serves as an example of someone who was brought from a self-righteous condition to dependence upon God's grace. As you see again in verses 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul sets himself forth as the foremost of sinners. Please grasp this. Because Paul, in his writings, points out certain sins, as he does in the passage we're looking at today. But I want to make it clear that he saw himself as the foremost of sinners. I stress this because Paul, pe people tend to want to criticize the Apostle Paul. Uh, one popular author I read said, you know, Paul, Paul, Paul didn't think slavery was wrong and he was down on women and, and uh, gays. And they... Remember this, he saw himself as a chief of sinners. God used this man. He was eminently qualified to teach doctrine for the church. He knew the Old Testament law well. He'd encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. 
He had a beautiful humility and yet a bold assertiveness because God called him to set out an understanding of the gospel, what we might call doctrine, for the church. I've sometimes used the verses on the screen when talking to someone who feels like there's no hope for them. Many of you go into prisons with our prison ministry and share with inmates there, and every now and then you'll find an inmate who thinks that, that he's committed the unpardonable sin. There's no hope for him. I find it helpful to go to this passage and say, you know, do you think you're worse than the worst of all sinners? And the person will typically say, no, of course not. Well, there was hope for the Apostle Paul. There's hope for all of us. Well, Paul then sets out doctrine for the church. But I want to take a, a, a little time now to address another uh, statement, a short phrase that he lists, and that has to do with homosexuality. What about homosexuality? I want to say just two, two things about um, homosexuality in general, and then open it up to challenges to this view. Because, um, and you may be wondering, why are you even pointing it out? It's just one in a list of sins. Well, a couple of reasons for it. Number one, it is it is the most talked about, uh, debated, uh, cultural issue today, even in, in churches among Christians. Our young adults, our students especially, uh, have questions and concerns about it. For them, it's typically not a settled issue by any means. But my broader concern is not the issue of homosexuality. It's the issue of how we interpret and apply the Bible. Because I want our students, our young adults, people of every age, to know and believe and understand that the Bible is a sure foundation on which you can build your life. If Paul somehow got it wrong on this subject and his, his teaching is not relevant, well, we can as assume he got it wrong on other topics as well, all forms of immorality. So I want to address what he's saying and why, but I do want to open it up. If you want to send a question, uh, we'll, we'll try to address that. I'll try uh, during the message this morning. And, um, and so feel free to send one in, and we'll put it up on the screen. First of all, what about homosexuality? The Apostle Paul includes homosexual practice, and I want to I would ask you to underline in your minds the word practice. He's not talking about mere same-sex attraction, which is far more common. And I expect a number of people here today have, have struggled with at some point in your life. He's talking about practice, but he lists it among other sins that can be forgiven by God's grace. It's among other sins. It is not isolated as the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. In fact, in writing the Corinthians, he notes that this had been the practice of some previously in the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that you will now see on the screen. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. <clears throat> Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
They're swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There were apparently a number in the church at Corinth who could testify to what God had done in their lives by the power of his Holy Spirit. So again, the Apostle Paul is including homosexual practice in a list of other sins that can be forgiven by the grace of God and had been at the time of his writing. Secondly, I would just say this. Uh, In my opinion, the consistent teaching of Old and New Testaments both is that homosexual practice is a sin. If we take out the Genesis account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and a very similar account in the book of Judges, because those things involved something very, very abusive, gang rape, terrible situations. If, if we remove those from the conversation, there are really six passages that speak of homosexual practice. Two of those are in the book of Leviticus. They're very, very clear about a man not lying with, with a man. And some will say, well, we, we can dismiss those because... A lot of those Old Testament laws don't apply anymore to us. Now, that goes back to our conversation of two weeks ago. I won't speak to that now, but it certainly is true that ceremonial ritual laws of worship no longer apply because they've been fulfilled in Christ. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. But there are four verses in the New Testament that speak directly to homosexual practice. Three of those written by the Apostle Paul. Two of those we have just seen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The other is in um, Romans chapter 1. But I think it is uh, quite consistent in Old and New Testaments. Really, really difficult to get around that. Now, having said that, uh, there are a lot of challenges to this view. And challenges come, uh, some from theologians, uh, many from pastors, many of our mainline Christian denominations in the United States have changed their views on this topic and said, we we really can't take uh, the words of the Apostle Paul because he had something different in mind when he was talking about homosexual practice. He couldn't understand consensual Uh, loving same-sex relationships. He had a different frame of reference, so, you know, we can't really use his his writings either. But I I maintain that the the teaching of Old New Testaments is quite quite clear on this. So I want to raise some challenges to this view, and Brett, I'll go ahead and put some up unless you have some that you want to uh, put up beforehand um, for me. I've prepared a few. Okay. Someone sent this question in. This was not one I had prepared. Um, if, if I live as a homosexual and I seek Christ as my Savior, will I be condemned? Oh, wow. That's, thank you for asking that. Um, if I'm saved and continue to live with a significant other, does this mean that I'm against the Word of God? We didn't want to start off with an easy question, did we? This is, let, me, let me just say this. Part of the reason I want to address this is to provide more compassion for the longtime Christian, heterosexual, 
for whom same-sex attraction's never been an issue, for someone who's, who's been convinced your whole life of this script and you really don't like what you see happening in the nation and you really have a, 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 quite a negative, maybe very angry view toward homosexuals. I want to speak as much to, to this side of the audience because sometimes you'll get a question like this from, from a young adult who's struggling. You know, he says, I'm a 17-year-old and uh, my, my friends are, are getting, you know, interested, they're interested in girls who are dating and I'm, I'm different. I don't like the way I feel. But I, I've got these feelings that I don't want to have. And I'm afraid. And I'm afraid that that I'm rejected by God, I'm condemned by God, and people with same-sex attraction can feel particularly dirty, and there are many of them who don't want those feelings. And I think some of us need to understand that kind of a struggle and have a little more compassion for those who feel and experience things very differently than we do. Now let me think about this question. But I live as a homosexual and I say, Christ is my Savior, will I be condemned? Let me say this to you. Both lists that we just read from the Apostle Paul refer to a practice of homosexuality that can be forgiven and has been forgiven. Every one of us in life struggle with some sins. Those who are heterosexual singles struggle often mightily. Listen, I've been a teenage young man many years ago too. Everybody has these struggles. For some, it's a, a strong predisposition toward uh, alcohol. There are many things that, that, that we feel like we're drawn strongly toward. It doesn't mean those things are, are right. There's forgiveness for these things. And if we believe the scripture, there is grace for these things. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. With the temptation, he will make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There are people who live as celibate singles, like Jesus. Who never engaged in sex. They didn't find their identity in sexual attraction, and neither should we. Our primary identity is in Christ. So I do believe it's inconsistent to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and say, Jesus, I'm your follower, but to willingly, knowingly continue any, any list of sins. And it goes for greed, too. I mean, we need to address that more in our church, I suspect. If you're, if you're consumed with love of money, that's not consistent with following Jesus. If you're same-sex attracted, of course you can be saved. The grace of God is for each one of us, but it is inconsistent with a faithful walk of devotion to the Lordship of Christ to engage in any kind of sexual practice outside the bounds of what God has ordained, and that is marriage between one man and one woman is given us in Genesis 2.24. So if I'm saved and continue to in, engage in homosexual practice, I would say yes, it would mean 
that your lifestyle is at odds with the Word of God. There's forgiveness, there's discipleship, there's grace, there's help. I'm not suggesting it'll be easy, but neither is it easy for the heterosexual single who struggles mightily. So that would be my, my view. Certainly there's salvation, but receiving the salvation of Jesus is a call to follow him as Lord. And you know what Jesus says? He doesn't say, do whatever you find fulfilling. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In fact, he says, you've got to be willing to forsake all you've got, really, if you want to be my disciple. And that goes for those who are, who are bound with love of money, or those who are given to slander of other people, those uh, out, who are not married, heterosexuals, living together, having sex outside of marriage. Goes for us all. Following Jesus means increasingly trying to live a life of growing devotion to him. We all stumble. We all fall. I still do. You still do. But we don't will to continue in our sin. We will to walk faithfully to Jesus Christ. Thank you. I, I hope they'll get easier from here. <laughs> Any others you want to put on the screen or you want me to move to my, my next one? Okay. There are two main opinions on homosexuality, that people choose to be gay or that people are born gay and don't have a choice. If it is the latter, meaning no choice, how can homosexuality in this case be a sin? That's a fantastic question. I mean, it's, frankly, it's one we all wonder. You know, if a person is born with this predisposition, this uh, attraction, how can it be said to be wrong? Um, first of all, I don't know the answer to whether there is a genetic cause or everyone is born with uh, the predisposition or same-sex attraction. I don't know to what degree, you know, one's environment growing up shapes this or has to do with it. Um, as I mentioned before, though, I think there are a lot of folks who realize they have these feelings and they don't really want to have them. So I, I lean towards saying not everyone chooses to have these feelings. We do choose that which we practice and engage in, however. So if the latter, meaning no choice, how can it be a sin? There are many things that we feel inclined to do in life that does not mean they are right to do or they are the will of God. As I mentioned before, there are some people who are just strongly uh, inclined toward, toward alcoholism. And that doesn't mean it's right for them to get drunk. I talked to a guy one time who was rationalizing his rage, his anger toward his wife, which I think was a horrible sin. But he said, I, I, I come by it naturally, he said. My dad was this way. He said, this is inherited. This is the way I am. That doesn't make it right to be abusive to your wife. And we all struggle with things that we, we feel like we didn't choose to have this struggle. But a life of discipleship is bringing our lives in line with the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. And though in our minds we think, well, it's not fair if I didn't choose it, but, but the fact is there are many, many things like that in life that we, we are inclined toward, uh, but yet we bring ourselves under the authority of God's Word and ask for the grace and power of His Spirit. It's a, a great question a lot of people are asking. Any others, Brett, or do I move to my list? Oh, there is another one. 
How do you address someone that you have a good relationship with that claims to be a believer but takes Bible verses out of context to justify their sin? They claim God doesn't make mistakes and made them that way. Well, you're talking about whole, tell me if I need to switch this microphone. You're talking about whole mainland denominations in the United States of America. You're talking about um, even those who now call themselves e evangelical who are revising their views to see the writings of Paul as uh, his culture that time not relevant for today. So um, there are a lot of people that, that do that. Well, you know, if you've got a good relationship, that is a key, and I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, it starts with a friendship where you can speak to one another truthfully in love. And that's why I, I'm doing a message like this, because it really comes down to biblical interpretation and understanding and application. Um, because there are really different views of these passages we're, we're looking at. I, I hope uh, what we're doing might, might help you, uh, talking with a person like that. The claim that God made them this way, again, we just talked about. Um, a lot of people feel like they have, you know, feelings that they didn't choose. God made me this way, but that doesn't mean we can act on them. It all comes down to our view of the authority of Scripture. And I, I will add this, by the way, that it seems that throughout the history of Christianity, uh, the church has been pretty consistent interpreting these, these verses to say that homosexual practice is sin. Um, church has been consistent about that, and I, I think we always need to be wary when someone wants to start interpreting a Bible verse in a way the church for 2,000 years never has before. So I think you're, you're on the right track by leading your friend back to Scripture and doing it as graciously and lovingly as you can, with as much compassion as possible. But thank you. Thank you for asking that. Anything else, uh, Brett? Okay. One of the um, common challenges is that the church in the past supported slavery and racism. Um, this comes up a lot in the writings. You know, Paul was wrong about uh, slavery. That's the reason last week we focused on this topic, because so many people tie the two together. If you recall, in the list of sins in 1 Timothy 1, we read today, Paul condemns enslavers. So the church was wrong when it supported slavery and racism. The church took Scripture and used it to oppress people. It is always wrong to take any part of Scripture to oppress any person. Racism is a, a terrible sin. But not all the church did that. Certain segments of the church, many churches led the way in abolition. So I think that is, uh, it's incorrect to say that Scripture supports slavery and racism, just because the church's sin doesn't need, mean we need to wrongly interpret it scripture. One of the ones that comes up a lot is that Jesus um, never mentioned homosexuality. And I would just say, he was never asked about it. He didn't really need to. What Jesus did was set in place his understanding 
of the proper relationship for sexual relations. And it goes to Genesis 2.24, as he quotes on the screen. From the beginning, the Creator, God made the male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus adds these words. They are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus simply emphasized the creation design of God in the Garden of Eden, as does the Apostle Paul. And Scripture is pretty consistent that this is the one relationship in which sexual union between two people is blessed. Um, just very, very briefly, uh, it's, it's very common now to say that when Paul references, uh, New Testament references to homosexuality like Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, had in mind something different than same-sex loving relationships. Um, just very quickly, uh, a lot of people, a lot of writers say what Paul had in mind was man-boy abuse common in the Rome world. That's what he meant by this. So we really can discount everything Paul said. There's just no support in the language of the Greek text to support that whatsoever. Um, there is a chapter in a book I'll put up on the screen at the end by uh, pastor author Kevin DeYoung where he deals with the language, the Greek words, what Paul uses, what he doesn't use. It just doesn't support that view. Furthermore, if you look at Romans chapter 1, Verses 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul refers to men with men in particular when he is addressing uh, this particular practice. So um, just very briefly. Finally, just a, a challenge that will come up a lot is, isn't it love that really matters? How can it be loving to tell someone what they're feeling is wrong? Um, love is what matters. I think love's the defining mark of a Christian, but love is God defines it. Unconditional love for someone does not mean unconditional acceptance that any practice is correct. You can love someone without having to agree that everything they do is correct. And throughout Scripture, uh, particularly in the writings of the Apostle John and the Gospel of John and the letters of John, talks about the fact that love, love for God, is really expressed in obedience to His commands. It's not merely a warm feeling in your heart, but it's a devotion uh, to the Lord in His word, will, and way. Let me move real quickly before we just completely run out of time to a few closing thoughts. And I really want to speak to those of us in the Christian church um, for whom this has not been a personal struggle and may, may feel like we're pretty settled in our, our views and uh, in agreement with most of what's been said today. First of all this, Jesus' strongest words of judgment were for the self-righteous. He told this parable, and we'll just look at the first few verses, he told a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. There is never a time, there is never a place for a follower of Jesus to treat any other person, no matter what his or her views, with contempt. As believers, we need to walk humbly and be holy. 
the Apostle Paul who wrote these passages, who is so scorned by many for pointing out these sins, first refers to himself as the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. His life set forth as an example for us. Number two, we Christians must put our own house in order regarding sexual immorality and faithfulness and singleness in marriage. I think Jesus would say to, uh, to some who take the name of Christian, get the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in somebody else's eye. The church has not lived a life of sexual, largely speaking. Those who take the name of Jesus, largely speaking, whether single or married, have not set a great example of sexual purity, have not set a great example of honoring God's design for marriage in Genesis 2.24. Number three, I mentioned this before, but I want to just say it again. Consider how difficult life might be for people who experience same-sex attraction. Where can a struggling person go for help, for comfort, for grace? for guidance, if not to a follower of Jesus like you or me. Finally, just be a safe person to talk to. Be a friend, be compassionate, be merciful, be loving, but be biblical. Our friends struggling in this area don't need us to tell them it's right if God doesn't say it's right. I want to close with some words of a letter written by a woman to the church regarding homosexuals and lesbians. That's how she addresses it. She says, when the word homosexual is mentioned in the church, we hold our breaths and sit in fear. Most often this word is followed with condemnation, laughter, hatred, or jokes. Rarely do we hear any words of hope. Many of us recognize our sin. Does the church as a whole see theirs? Do you see the sin of pride? That you believe you are better or more acceptable to Jesus than we are? Have you been Christ-like in your relationships with us? Would you meet us at the well or restaurant for a cup of water or coffee? Would you touch us even if we showed signs of leprosy or AIDS? Would you call us down from our trees as Christ did Zacchaeus and invite yourself to our house as our guest? Would you allow us to sit at your table and break bread? Can you love us unconditionally and support us as Christ works in our lives, as he works in yours to help us all overcome our own sins? And to those of you who would change the church and its teaching to accept the gay community and its lifestyle, you give us no hope at all. To those of us who know God's word and will not dilute it to fit our desires, we ask you to read in John's revelation to the, the letter to the church at Pergamum. And then she quotes Jesus rebuking the church for teaching those in the church that any form of sexual immorality was okay. And she says to these folks, you're willing to compromise the word of God to be politically correct. We're not deceived. If we accept your willingness to compromise, then we must also compromise. We must therefore accept your lying, your adultery, your lust, your idolatry, your addictions, your sins. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. We do not ask for your acceptance of our sins any more than we accept yours. 
We simply ask for the same support, love, guidance, and most of all, hope that is given to the rest of your congregation who need redemption. We're your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not what we shall be, but thank God we are not what we were. Let us work together in obedience to God's word to see that we all arrive safely home. And she signs it, a sister in Christ. Closing, a couple resources. Three, Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Alberry is a great uh, little book. It's only about 80 pages long, and it's really a good resource. He is a pastor in England who has lived with same-sex attraction as a celibate uh, follower of Jesus, a pastor who seems to be a very godly man. It's a good book, a good teaching, and his website is seen there if you want to see his short five-minute video. Loving My LGBT Neighbor is a book we've used here. Our small group leaders have used. It really deals with some of the questions of uh, loving uh, our, our friends without uh, accepting or compromising what we believe in this area. And then for it, the best Bible teaching book that's relatively short that I found of this subject is by Kevin DeYoung. Um, although I have to say I haven't quite finished it. Uh, I just started this week. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? He deals with the biblical passages. He, he's a Bible teacher, scholar. He goes back to the original languages. Very uh, thorough, concise job in about 150 pages. So we're out of time. Let's pray for a moment. Father, as always, there's been any um, error in what I've said that you would direct your people rightly. But Lord, we want to be a people who love your word, who faithfully follow you. We want to be a church, Lord, known for our compassion and for our faithfulness to your word. Where struggling people of any type can come and find your truth, but find it in your love. Would you make us that way? Would you make us devoted followers of Jesus, people who find our identity in Christ and who lead others to find their identity in Christ? May we draw on your amazing grace to fill our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.